everybody agrees that it's uh, for uh, you know a civilized society. It's, there's no uh, uh, excuse for having 47 million uninsured uh, people, and we need to do something about that. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, uh, has just been called into a client matter as we were about to record, so uh, he may or may not be with us before this program concludes today. Uh, today's show is sponsored by Clio, the web-based practice management system, and also by Landy Insurance. Well, there has been... Uh, much discussion uh, in recent months over the question of health care reform. One in six people in the United States is not covered by health insurance, and the Obama administration is looking to change that with an overhaul of the uh, uh, system that for the delivery and payment of, of health care in the United States, uh, and uh, looking at perhaps a, a $1.5 trillion budget uh, to do that with, leaving uh, at least some people up on uh, Capitol Hill up in arms over this. Uh, as uh, as it's been discussed, the health care plan would, would compete with private insurers and uh, cover uh, some of the uninsured and, and provide uh, perhaps a middle level of insurance for those who are underinsured. Uh, many are finding opposition with the bill, reason to oppose the bill at least, uh, including uh, some of the Republican Party and some lobbying groups uh, that say it will only end up raising medical costs. Even some conservative Democrats have found reasons to oppose the bill. Uh, on today's show, we're going to look at some of the legal aspects uh, of health care reform. Look at this from a legal perspective. Uh, discuss some of the issues of federalism versus state rights versus individual rights and uh, get some perspective on how this all plays out. To help us do that today, we have two guests uh, who are uh, knowledgeable in this area. First off is uh, Professor David Orentlicker. Uh, uh, professor Orentlicker is both an MD and a JD. He is professor and co-director at the Center for Law and Health at Indiana University Schools of Law and Medicine in Indianapolis. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School and Harvard Medical School previously served as director of the Division of Medical Ethics at the American Medical Association, where he led the drafting of the AMA's first Patients' Bill of Rights. He's published Matters of Life and Death through Princeton University Press and is co-author of the law school textbook Healthcare Law and Ethics, now in its seventh edition. Uh, Dr. Orlicker served in the Indiana House of Representatives between 2002 and 2008, where he authored legislation to promote job creation, protect children from abuse and neglect, and to make health care coverage more affordable. 
Dr. Orlinger, we're happy to help have you on Lawyer to Lawyer today. My pleasure. Thank you. And joining us next today is Joel L. Michaels, uh, the partner in charge of the health law department uh, at the law firm McDermott, Will & Emery in its Washington, D.C. office. Uh, Joel Michaels has extensive experience in health care insurance and healthcare delivery system organization, financing, and regulation. He has worked with health plans and other payors on pharmacy benefit management contracts and related regulatory issues involving pharmaceutical pricing and benefit design. Joel also works with clients in complex litigation matters in the health insurance industry, including payment and claims processing disputes between health plans and providers. Joel is a contributor to McDermott, Will, and Emery's Healthcare Law Reform blog, which can be found online at healthcarelawreform.com. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Joel Michaels. Thank you very much. Obviously, uh, healthcare is is very much uh, uh, being talked about uh, these days, and uh, I have a uh, a number of specific questions, but but I, I wonder if if the place to start is perhaps with the Constitution uh, and and the question of whether there are constitutional impediments to any of this. I, I know I'm I'm here in in Massachusetts where uh, we have this uh, this healthcare mandate uh, that many people are are saying could serve as a model for uh, health reform uh, on a national basis. I guess the the question at least arises uh, is there any constitutional impediment to, to such a such a requirement that people be required to to purchase health insurance uh, david orlinker let me put that to you well you know we have experience with legal mandates you have to purchase automobile insurance as a con- now that's as a condition of driving a car so i suppose the question would be do, do you have to make it as a, a condition of something but i don't think that would be a concern. After all, people are part of the system. We provide care to people when they're sick. And so people are in exposing us to the costs of, of taking care of them. And I, and I think that that shouldn't be a serious problem. I'm not sure that we're going to reach that with the current legislative proposals. Obviously, some drafts do talk about a mandate. I'd be surprised if we get to that point initially. Joel, do you do you see it that way as well? Yeah, I, I would. Uh, there are a number of potential legal challenges. Uh, in fact, I'm, uh, I was sort of surprised when you mentioned Massachusetts, uh, uh, how few uh, legal challenges there ultimately were to the legislation. Uh, not so much on constitutional grounds, but potentially under ERISA and ERISA preemption grounds. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's in essence a, a form of taxation for those who don't play or pay, and uh, it's probably going to survive that basic constitutionality uh, test. Uh, there will be some interesting you know, legal questions as we move forward, uh, but uh, I think uh, uh, that the, the overall constitutional uh, question is probably not going to loom that large. Well, let me let me put it to you then, I, I, Joel. You you represent a number of businesses in, in in this area that would that would uh, have an interest in this. What what hits you? What stands out to you as some of the the key legal issues uh, to be looked at uh, as we talk about healthcare reform? Well, some areas of interest uh, would be uh, uh, using different standards uh, for. Uh, or 
an evolving standard for determining uh, how services are uh, provided. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, discussion and, and some law actually passed to date that would begin to uh, uh, fund and promote uh, the concept of uh, uh, comparative effectiveness of procedures. And as I think about what I've dealt with over the last 25 or 30 years, we typically dealt with questions of coverage uh, with uh, under an analysis of medical necessity. But comparative effectiveness would create, I think, a whole new set of potential legal issues uh, because you would be looking at not necessarily whether a service is medically necessary or not, but between two services or products or items, uh, which one ultimately uh, is more cost and uh, quality effective, which one will get to the best result in the most cost-effective uh, way. Uh, and I can see that as raising a whole host of uh, you know, legal issues and questions as to one, who makes those determinations? Uh, two, where's the data coming from in terms of uh, how those uh, determinations are made? Uh, and uh, also, I think uh, as time evolves, uh, some of this will be closely related to uh, uh, genetic uh, information and uh, in a way, hopefully, that is not discriminatory but allows uh, decisions to be made about what is the best treatment protocol based on the individual's genetic makeup. But those raise some interesting questions as to uses of genetic information and confidentiality of data and, and such. So I find that part, uh, if, if we're moving to a, a more sophisticated standard as to how uh, services will be covered, uh, I find that part to be sort of fascinating. And as a lawyer, I expect that there will be a, a ton of new legal issues that will evolve in that area alone. There's no question. Anytime you change the rules of the game, and we're probably going to get a lot of rule changes here, you move from areas that are hotly contested now, uh, the Emergency Medical Treatment Act. If everybody's got access to health care, access to, to the right to health care in an emergency room becomes less important. And so we, we should see less litigation there, but then we're going to get litigation over all these new rules. What, what's covered, what's not covered, which categories of coverage do you fit into? If we're not all getting coverage in the same way, some of us get government subsidies, some of us don't, that's going to, people who don't make it into a favored category uh, are likely to litigate their denial of access. And one other area, too, that will be interesting to watch, and it's evolving now, is uh, issues of individual responsibility and how they uh, factor into coverage and premium rating decisions. But a number of, uh, of uh, people in the industry are looking at ways in which uh, premiums could be uh, reset based on people's uh, uh, status in terms of smoking, in terms of uh, uh, weight issues, uh, and the like. Uh, so that uh, individuals would be, quote, incentivized uh, to adopt healthier lifestyles in order to uh, have the, uh, a better premium charge at the end of the day. Well, how do you go about doing that in a way that is not discriminatory? How do you uh, uh, sort of segment from uh, those issues that are controllable, uh, those that are not? I think that, again, raises a whole set of uh, interesting legal questions. But if one of the outputs of uh, all of this healthcare reform uh, initiative is that people are going to have to be more responsible for their own health status, uh, the legal issues associated with that, I think, will be uh, up first and foremost in, in, uh, in terms of questions we'll have to deal with. 
does that raise questions about the ability of a, a health system to discriminate against people based on their health status? Is that an issue that would have to be addressed in some way? It may be that, that you, you'll need, as part of uh, legislation, more clarification because uh, I think there are some concerns that uh, uh, premium setting uh, that would distinguish based on certain uh, health conditions or physical conditions could be viewed as uh, discriminatory uh, if they're not properly tailored and the like. But uh, I think it would be helpful from a legal perspective if the policy direction is to move in that way uh, to have more clarity so that uh, health insurers uh, and employer health plans could feel uh, a greater level of comfort in their benefits slash premium designs that they're not running afoul of uh, other state and federal laws related to uh, prohibitions on discrimination. Yeah. You know, the Americans with Disabilities Act addresses this to some extent. We've had some litigation, and so far it seems that insurers, as long as they can justify it on actuarial grounds, are okay. But but Joel's right. It'll be important for the legislation to clarify this. Another issue is whether it makes sense. To what extent can you influence behavior? How desirable is it? There are some studies that suggest financial incentives can affect people's health behavior in, in good ways. And if, if we do it right, um, all to the better if we can discourage people from smoking. The, the important question is, do we use our incentives properly? Another way where incentives don't work so well is when you try to raise the cost of a doctor's visit or an emergency room visit in the hopes that patients will not run for health care for uh, the common cold, that they'll be more selective and only go seek care when it, they really need it. Turns out patients aren't very good at distinguishing necessary from unnecessary care. And as you raise the price, you discourage the sick as well as a healthy person from seeing the doctor. And it's better to work on physician incentives to make sure physicians don't provide unnecessary care than try to discourage patients from going to the doctor too quickly. David, you're somebody who's written about the the uh, issues of medical ethics uh, extensively. Are are there ethical issues implicated in healthcare reform? Are there issues that 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 should be addressed that aren't, or or uh, that are that uh, that are, are coming up that that raise concern for you that you're seeing here? Yeah, I mean, one of the problems that they're seeing in Massachusetts, for example, is providing access to cover doesn't mean you're going to get access to care. We're not heading down a path of the government saying, we're going to provide you care. We're going to, as we do for veterans, if you're a veteran, you'll, we'll give you care at a veteran's clinic or hospital. We'll give you what we're going to promise you is, is coverage. And then you still have to find a physician. Well, we know from the Medicaid system that just having uh, an insurance policy, a government Backed insurance policy doesn't mean you'll get a physician. And uh, an example here is I have a, a colleague who's a dermatologist and had a patient come down from Fort Wayne, which is about an hour and a half drive away, because that was the closest she could find a dermatologist who would accept Medicaid as payment. So we have to make sure that we design it in a way that physicians will actually accept the policies. And, and another problem that I think the insurance companies are on board with is to make sure that as insurance companies pick and choose who they insure, that they don't discriminate against the sicker patients, the cherry-picking problem. And it looks like 
insurance companies are willing to accept the idea that they will have to take all comers, that they can't reject somebody because or charge a higher premium because of a pre-existing condition. And so when you have that kind of a system, then the sicker people have more trouble getting care. That doesn't seem to be a problem, but there are other ways we have to be careful. The insurance company that makes you walk up three flights of stairs to reach their office, and if you have trouble breathing, uh, then there's no elevator, then that person's not going to apply. So we have to make sure that we don't have these uh, implicit kinds of methods to cherry-pick and sort the the needy from the not-so-needy. I, I would agree, and uh, the only thing I would add is that as a fundamental part of these health reform proposals, uh, you know, is the obligation to purchase insurance. And uh, one of the reasons for why health insurance companies felt the need to go through extensive application processes and all of these uh, legal disputes you've seen about rescission of uh, health insurance policies based on alleged misrepresentations, all I think uh, revolve in part around. Uh, adverse selection concerns, that if individuals can choose uh, when they decide to insure themselves and then pick a time when the service is needed, uh, it skews uh, the health insurance pool in a very adverse way. If uh, everyone is required to, quote, get in the pool uh, by virtue of these health reform uh, requirements or pay a penalty if they don't, then uh, the issue of timing and adverse selection would seem to go away, uh, None, uh, never mind the fact that now there will be other sources of paying for a whole uh, new set of people that health insurers may not have had access to uh, previously. Another key issue is the way we do the funding and how the system is structured. What We're headed down a path where those of us who have our employer-based insurance will keep it, and those who can't afford it or don't have it from their employer will have government subsidies. And historically, we've not done a good job in this country where the government subsidies only go to the people of lower incomes who don't have a lot of political influence. Again, that's the example of the Medicaid system. It's just not well-funded in the way Medicare is much better funded because we all go into it. And, and so that'll be a key question. Will there be political support over you know, the 5, 10, 15-year time range for a program that really subsidizes the poor? And as I say, programs like that, whether you look at housing or or, or health care, tend not to fare very well when you have a two-track system. One of the, uh, certainly a, a concern among some is that this is being pushed through too quickly and, and among others that it's not being pushed through quickly enough, I guess. Uh, uh, from, from your perspective, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot if you haven't taken a position on this, but what, what's your take on on the legislation that's being talked about? What what do you like about it? What what don't you like about it? Uh, David Orenlicker, let's start with you. Well, my main concern is while, say, if you take the House uh, Democratic proposal, does a very good job of targeting the problem of uninsurance and, and designing a way to make sure we really reach uh, almost all the uninsured. What nobody really is, is addressing adequately is the cost problem. You know, there's talk about electronic medical records and accountable care organizations and 
things we've talked about, comparative effectiveness research, they're all important, but none of the legislation is designed to really have the kind of effect we need on costs in the short run. And, and that's the problem Massachusetts is turning to now, and we saw their commission. And I think their commission is right. If you really want to change the, the cost curve and bend it down, as they say, you've got to change the way doctors are reimbursed. Right now, the more procedures, the more tests you do, the more you get paid. And it's not surprising we have too many procedures, too many expensive procedures. If physicians are paid a salary or a fixed fee per patient, and it can be a generous salary, but the key is to discourage physicians from ordering unnecessary care to, to avoid the financial incentives that really lead to unaffordable costs. And, and, and that's why the Massachusetts Commission recommended that to, to change the way we, we reimburse physicians. And it's hard to see that we're going to get the cost containment we need without that kind of change. I would uh, add to that, and I agree with that, that uh, one of the concerns, I think, is uh, you create this uh, expanded system of access, and unless there's a a real good uh, program for implementing uh, the cost management, cost control aspects of it, uh, it could uh, result in uh, financial stress that is uh, beyond uh, what I think the the, uh, framers of the legislation had anticipated. Uh, And I think one of the current debates in Washington right now is uh, uh, the price tag on all of this and uh, how it's going to be funded and will uh, the savings uh, that are anticipated from uh, modernization of the system, electronic health records, emphasis on preventive services and all that, uh, will they uh, have the desired effect and in time, uh, in other words, in a timely way. Uh, The fundamentals of how providers are paid uh, is are so much driven towards uh, volume and adding more volume as a way of being rewarded by the system that unless you're able to change that uh, fairly uh, soon, uh, the ability to ultimately control the the costs uh, of the whole system will be uh, significantly impaired. So I think, you know, that's uh, uh, the big question, which is everybody agrees that it's uh, for, uh, you know, a civilized society, there's no uh, uh, excuse for having 47 million uninsured uh, people and we need to do something about that. So everybody's in agreement, I think, on the access issue. Uh, the the real challenge and the real question, I think, is you know how do you ultimately control uh, the cost of the healthcare services? There are other aspects to. Uh, and the legislation that uh, people can debate as well. Uh, one of the controversial issues, particularly for health insurers, uh, is the uh, creation of a public option, uh, which would be uh, funded uh, or created by and run by the government. And uh, the pros for having the public option is that uh, it would, quote, be uh, competitive, it would keep uh, health insurers honest, uh, and uh, in if particularly if it's able to uh, lower Cost by creating a provider a reimbursement system that is uh, uh, more Medicare-like in its uh, context, that uh, it could really uh, have a, an impact in terms of uh, the health insurance marketplace. The counter arguments against it is that uh, it really uh, will result in a uh, potentially a cost shift uh, as uh, payments uh, to providers are lowered in the public option system, uh, as has been the case with. 
the programs like Medicare and Medicaid, uh, the cost will uh, pop up or be increased on the private sector side. So uh, the, uh, I think a real challenge is can uh, a public option be effectively uh, run uh, with private options and how would that all occur? And we'll see when the Senate Finance Committee produces uh, its uh, legislative proposal, uh, whether the public option appears in it or at least in the same form as we've seen with uh, the uh, other House and Senate bills. All right. We are going to take a short break. Uh, and when we return, we'll uh, talk more about this. And I believe uh, Craig Williams will join us then as well. So we'll be back in just a moment. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Right from the beginning, you know, I knew I was important. Can you say that about the insurance agency helping to protect your legal practice? Lawyers like Rebecca Brody are confident working with the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, knowing they have the best professional liability insurance coverage for the best possible price. It is about customer service. I think that's what we like to promote in our business. You know, we did have some kind of specialty questions. We did have some concerns. It was really great, and it really felt like if I'm that well taken care of, it made it possible for me to go and take care of, you know, take care of my business and take care of my clients. Give us a call at 800-336-5422 or visit our website at Landy.com. That's L-A-N-D-Y dot com. 60 years of experience. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to welcome back Dr. David Orntlicker, the professor and co-director of the Center Law for Law and Health at Indiana University Schools of Law and Medicine in Indianapolis, and Attorney Joel Michaels, the partner in charge of the Health Department in McDermott, Will & Emery's Washington, D.C. office. And welcome, Craig, to you. Thank you very much, Bob. <laughs> so, Craig, I've been, I've been asking lots of questions. Uh, do, do you want to uh, come in here at this point and uh, satisfy well, your curiosity a little bit? Yeah, I, I'm curious, uh, and I don't know whether you've asked this question yet, Bob, but you know, where does this overhaul pretty much leave the hospitals and the healthcare industry? How does it affect doctors and nurses? Well, one way to look at it, and this is David, the you know if you go back to the pre-Medicare Medicaid when that legislation was going through, and you talk to physicians, they were all very concerned we're going to have a government program and they'll cap our uh, reimbursement and we'll be worse off, it, but in the end, they were much better off because now they had a larger pool of paying patients. And, you know, the elderly people over 65 pre-Medicare generally had trouble, a high percentage of them affording health care. So if you can now take 50 million people or even if it's 35 or 40 million people and give them health care insurance, what business person wouldn't like uh, that kind of increase in, in a paying uh, potential clientele? So I think overall, the medical profession will be better off and hospitals will be better off. And that's why you saw the AMA endorse uh, the House Democratic proposal. I think they're also finding that 
while they many of them were resistant to the idea of government setting rules, uh, that insurance companies can be even more difficult to deal with. And, and you know, this may be the lesser of ev- two evils for them, but uh, there's a lot of reason why doctors are becoming more enthusiastic and even why a majority of doctors in this country would prefer a single-payer Canadian-style plan like we have with Medicare. Well, there's been a lot of complaints about, uh, or at least they've seen a lot of advertisements about the Canadian plan. How does our plan or the plan that we're proposing uh, compare to Canada's? Well, I, I would categorize what we're looking at as more of a German-Dutch Massachusetts model. Instead of the government saying, we will provide you a health care policy and now you go choose your doctor, as we do in Medicare, the government is saying, you have to purchase an insurance plan. If you already have one through your employer, you're okay. If you can afford it and you don't have one, you have to buy it. And if you can't afford it and you don't have one, we will provide you the subsidies to pay for it. Um, so it'll be a mix of a, a much more of a public-private mix. And I, I say that with a, dropping a little footnote as a law professor, already half of healthcare expenditures in this country are paid by the government. So we already are a heavily public-private mix today and, and will always be that we're never going to be 100% private pay. Where does that half come from? Is that seniors and Medicare and Medicaid? Right, seniors, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Veterans Affairs, Indian Health Service, um, government spending on public health programs. So it's a, an assortment of government spending. Um, I think that includes the tax deductions that many of us get when we uh, use pre-tax dollars to pay for our health care. Uh, just, I know we're we're starting to run out of time. One one other issue I wanted to ask about before we do is you mentioned the issue of electronic records, and and one of the concerns that people have had about that is is this whole question of of patient privacy and 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 whether electronic records somehow uh, will open up the door to uh, uh, breaches of of that privacy. Uh, do, do the proposals that are circulating around address uh, privacy issues in any substantive way? Uh, and uh, if so, how? If not, what What should they do? Uh, Joel, let me ask you that. Well, my recollection is, is that uh, when the stimulus legislation was passed uh, uh, some months ago, uh, there were provisions built into it uh, to better enhance uh, what was uh, HIPAA privacy. And uh, it gave the law more teeth. It also uh, created uh, a, a series of new obligations uh, in terms of security breaches and notification, uh, and uh, also extended the applicability of the law uh, to business associates of of uh, covered entities and persons, so that they would have uh, direct legal responsibilities under the statute. So. I think those uh, changes in that law which preceded it is in response to uh, the idea that there will be increased electronification of records and with that uh, greater security and privacy concerns. Um, and so I, I think the, you know, the changes in law are reflecting uh, the movement towards that, uh, that uh, path. So what are we going to see in the next couple of weeks? I mean, we have some pretty hot and heavy negotiating that's going to go on in Congress. What kind of compromises are we looking at? Um, this is 
Joel and David may want to jump in on this too. I think the one of the biggest issues right now is uh, the cost and uh, how do you uh, uh, make the bill uh, revenue neutral as opposed to exacerbating or adding to the deficit. And that's going to require, I think, some uh, significant negotiations and uh, discussions among all of the, the parties. Um, but uh, the uh, the cost is the major challenge, and that's where you're getting not only resistance from the Republican uh, representatives and senators, but uh, also from uh, conservative Democrats, or at least fiscally conservative Democrats. And so there will be, I think, some attempt to try to deal with, uh, well, what happens if the uh, you know anticipated savings from modernization, electronic health work records, all these other changes uh, don't really materialize or don't materialize quickly enough or to the same degree. And I think uh, some of the discussion may be, okay, well, is there some kind of fail-safe revenue uh, methodology uh, to uh, deal with that issue? Either should it arise or maybe uh, should it be dealt with uh, at the get-go? One of the more sort of controversial issues, uh, once you get into the question of how will this ultimately be funded, is uh, what is the role of tax policy, tax law and policy. Um, some of the discussion, and it's very controversial, particularly with the administration, uh, is uh, whether uh, one source of revenue uh, to deal with any shortfalls or that will be necessary for implementing this kind of reform uh, would be some form of taxation uh, on the employee health benefit, which has, as you know, uh, historically been preferred from a tax treatment perspective. Uh, that's very controversial, but that's uh, something that people at least uh, looking at or thinking about, uh, we'll see uh, when the Senate Finance Committee comes out with its proposal whether they address that issue uh, in any way. But uh, I think that's the biggest uh, question is uh, both politically uh, and in terms of the feasibility of the legislation, uh, how will it be paid for? Uh, Can a case be made that it will not exacerbate the deficit? And what are the fail-safe measures or other sources of revenue that could be employed you know, should uh, the the legislation begin to add to and create deficits that were not anticipated? That's exactly right. The there are potential ways to save costs, like changing physician reimbursement, that would could make a substantial dent in in the budget projections. But it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So now you're left with this substantial funding gap, and many of the alternatives run into political problems if you tax health, employee health benefits, labor is very concerned about that. You know, the way we fund Medicare and Social Security is we do a payroll tax, and, and there are a lot of, the, the virtue of that is everybody contributes, and it sort of satisfies the American ethic of personal responsibility and that you earn your benefits. The problem is that runs into the president's pledge to Americans who earn less than 250000 that their taxes won't go up. And if you have a broad-based payroll tax, you you have to, that runs afoul of the, the, the pledge. So the politics are, are what's complicating this, and it'll be interesting to see how it, it ends up. Well, we've reached the point in our program where we need to wrap up and get your final thoughts. So, Joel, let's start with you, get your final thoughts and your contact information for our listeners. Okay. Uh, final thoughts. Uh, it's a fascinating time to be in Washington and you know be involved with the healthcare industry. I've been working at it in different 
ways, shapes, and forms over the last 30 to 35 years. And uh, as uh, many changes that I've seen around sort of the margins, I, I do sense uh, that we'll have some form of legislation that will represent a material change uh, in the way the health care is delivered and financed in the United States. Uh, it may not be what is right now in some of the legislative proposals, but I think uh, the circumstances that we're under are quite different. Uh, uh, people have uh, compared this to the sort of the perfect storm uh, where you have a severe recession uh, and growing uh, numbers of uninsured, a, an employer-based uh, health care system uh, that because of the recession and because of rising health care costs uh, is beginning to uh, weaken in its ability to, to fund and support the system in the way it's done. Uh, in the past. Uh, so uh, you also have uh, a president, uh, presidential candidate uh, who ran on this issue uh, and won. Uh, and so there's a uh, political mandate. And, uh, and, uh, and so I think uh, all of that suggests that we probably will see uh, some major changes in the way uh, healthcare is financed delivered. And I think we'll see it relatively soon. Uh, it will be, I think the biggest challenge will be uh, costs and uh, being, finding an appropriate political way to, to uh, finance those costs. Uh, that may also require some reductions, changes, modifications in uh, the, these initial proposals that uh, were very much uh, uh, proposals that expanded access. I do think, uh, with all the skepticism that one might have after uh, doing this for 30, 35 years, uh, you will see something come out soon uh, of a material nature, and, uh, and hopefully at the end of the day it will be uh, something that improves uh, not only uh, the cost of health care, but uh, better health care outcomes for uh, you know, the, the citizens of the country. Um, my contact uh, information is uh, email address is jmichaels. M-I-C-H-A-E-L-S at M-W-E dot com. And uh, that's probably the best uh, uh, resource to use if, if you have any questions or want to connect with me. Thank you, Joel. Can David, can we get your final thoughts and your contact information? Yes. the Joel's right. The stars look much much aligned this time, compared, especially compared to where we were during the Clinton administration. In many ways, it's reminiscent of the political landscape when Medicare and Medicaid were passed a president who sweeps in and with a, a strong mandate, strong uh, uh, majorities in Congress for the Democrats, not quite as good as what Lyndon Johnson had, but 60 senators and, 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 a, and a healthy margin in the House as well. Um, that's what you need. You know, Medicare and proposals like that were floating for years, but there just weren't uh, strong enough majorities in Congress to for Roosevelt, Truman, or Kennedy to get that kind of legislation through. Uh, so, yeah, I think we'll see something, not only because we have, and also because we have so many uninsured and so many underinsured people who have health care insurance, but still left with substantial bills. The, the worry I see is whether it's a durable health care plan that when, when we see the proposals are floating out there, they don't look like the kind of proposals that will stand the test of time, that will really hold up and, and, and reach the goals of universal coverage and affordable universal coverage, and will they start to unravel over time? And, and so, and I don't, I can't, right now, it, it doesn't look like the kinds of changes that are needed. You know, Medicare has st stood the test of time. 
but it, it's not looking like a Medicare kind of program. And your contact information, oh, yes, David? Thank you. Uh, my email is D for David, O as an Oscar, R E, N as in Nancy, T as in Tom, L I, Dorantly at I U, P as in Paul, U I, dot E D U. Great. Well, thank you very much. And Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. To all our listeners, remember you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows on LegalTalkNetwork.com. And let me add my thanks to uh, Dr. David Orentlicker and uh, Attorney Joel Michaels for their time and thoughtfulness in being with us today. Craig, I look forward to talking to you again next week. We'll be back then to discuss another great legal topic. And when you think legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.